Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. You know, I've met and spoken with a lot of business owners over the years, and, and I've got to say, one of the most common dreams for entrepreneurs is to own a business that allows them to take off time whenever they want and to travel. Yet, few entrepreneurs understand how far from reality that dream tends to be. You know, what normally happens is they start the business, they get bogged down in the day-to-day, and really, the only palm trees they're seeing are, are, are on the calendar of exotic places that they've, uh, they've got up on the wall next to them. But today's guest is someone who managed to have her cake and eat it too. Jodie Cook started a social media marketing agency back in 2011, and she grew it to a sustainable size before realizing that if she ever wanted to travel, she was going to have to build herself out of the business. Five years and 16 employees later, of course, a whole bunch of processes built in there, Jodie was free to travel as she pleased. Her agency was self-sufficient. And importantly, her would-be acquirer was able to walk in without feeling like they needed to have an earn out in place. I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Jodie Cook. Hey, Jodie, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. My absolute pleasure. Um, I know we're going to be having a bit of a chat about your business, JC Social Media, um, but maybe for uh, maybe I could kick over to you and you can give us a little bit of background and kind of what led you to start that business. I started JC Social Media as just a solo freelancer who wanted nothing more than to update Facebook pages on behalf of different companies. And it really was that simple. So my business plan back in 2011 was just two words, get clients. And I went along to networking events. I was only 22 at the time. And I just introduced myself as a social media manager and then got meeting interesting people. They they got in touch and then started winning clients from there. And I don't think I thought of it as a business until probably about eight months in when I hired my first person and then it just grew from there. Nice. So I, I noticed um, checking out your LinkedIn profile, you, you went and did business management at the University of Sheffield. Like, was there anything, was it that, did that degree kind of give you a bit of a, a kickstart? Did you lean into marketing? Did you, you know, what was the sort of, was there any context that helped you make that step? I think I took a business management degree because I wanted to leave my options quite open. 
I wouldn't say there was loads of practical information in the degree. And I think going to university is often just about learning how to be a functioning human rather than learning anything <laughs> that you're then going to use in your career. And interestingly, although I did study marketing within my degree, we didn't cover any social media. And even though two years later, I left, I left and started a social media agency. So I think a lot of the time education has to catch up with the real world. And that was definitely the case for me. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I can relate to that. I, I did an MBA a few years back now, but I just, um, I, marketing was the first subject I did and I have an interest in marketing, but they, there was nothing in there about social media, literally not a word. It was, it was all so old school. And by the time I finished the MBA, those subjects were so completely out of date because social had exploded and the way we engage out there had changed so much. So um, so yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think education is very much about um, maybe giving you some frameworks on how to function and operate more so than you, this is the vital piece of information you need to be able to be successful. <laughs> I think I really enjoyed that it wasn't written into textbooks yet. I kind of felt like I was writing the textbooks and especially when my team and I would have things that we just had to figure out I would say like there is no textbook for this it's not like we're an accountancy firm who's got this you know this blueprint way of doing things that's going to be relevant forever and ever we are writing this from scratch and I think I really enjoyed that way of thinking yeah yeah you were kind of the wild west of the social media really it's uh you know it's people making it up as they're going really um yeah that's it that's fascinating and and what was the business model like like did you and I probably changed over time but was it kind of you did some fixed fee work? Did you put people on retainers? How did people engage with you? From the very start, it was retainers. I think I read somewhere, I probably read like my first ever business book and it was talking about um, monthly recurring work. So that's just what I started out with. I did, I really didn't like project work. We um, By the time we sold, we were 80% retainer work and 20% project. But even within the project, it was training contracts that would be sort of recurring at the same time or we'd have repeat clients. But I was always very much like, you should be able to get clients and the default should be that they stay. The default shouldn't be that they go on this date and then you have to repitch for the same clients. I just, I didn't like that. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Initial project, let's get to know each other, but very clearly... This is how we engage going forward. Um, that's interesting. And and did you target any kind of particular industries, niches, stuff like that, or was it fairly broad? Or at first, and this bear in mind, this was two thousand and eleven. Social media was not the thing it is now at all. So when I was going out and networking at first, I wasn't really talking to people about who they should use for social media. I was talking to people about why they should be on social media. So imagine having that conversation now. It's just unheard of. So I was setting up accounts for companies from scratch, and it was up to me to find their Twitter handle, whereas now I just don't think that would happen. It's just one of the things that you do on day one. So at first, my my niche was the whole of social media, which is huge. If I was starting from scratch now, I would probably pick one platform, one industry, but back then it was just, it was all of it, like you said, the Wild West. And so it was an accident, really, that I ended up getting a lot of clients in healthcare. But that was because I've, I'd done a graduate scheme in health and social care, and I just knew people in that industry. So that was what happened naturally. But then 
even throughout the years of running the agency, I think we were still about 20 or 30% healthcare. And then some others came in. Actually, at one point, we had that many hospitality clients that I considered being a hospitality-focused social media agency. And then when March 2020 hit, I was so pleased that we didn't do that Um, because I think we would have had a bit of a rough time. Not as rough as hospitality, but I think we would have had a bit of a rough time. So, yeah, we were pretty broad. It was it was healthcare, um, professional services, bit of hospitality, and then random other stuff. Yeah, interesting. Um, and so talk to me a little bit about, you know, the, the, I guess the growth of the company. I mean, you said, I think it was eight months that you hired your first employee. Was that one of those, you know, talk to me through that. Was it, was it a scary moment? Was it exciting? First time you've hired somebody? It's yeah. <laughs> always interesting. It was absolutely terrifying. I remember I knew I needed to hire someone because I had 40 hours of client work a week for myself and I still wanted to go out and get more clients. And that was a real crossroads. It was, I could just do this forever. I could be a freelancer. I could just have clients. But I thought, no, I think I do want to hire and I think I want to build something bigger. So I remember putting out a job description. I remember seeing people for interview and just thinking, I'm so unprepared to give an interview. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'd been the other side of interviews. So I had a vague idea how you play bosses. <laughs> so that's why. So I just, yeah, I asked them questions that felt like the right questions to ask and found people who, well, found, yeah, the first guy I hired, Jason, just seemed to fit the, fit the mold seemed to be really good. And yeah, I was like, well, what's the worst that could happen? It could not work out, but then I'm sure there's ways of, dealing with that and yeah it worked out really well yeah nice one nice one and so you hired your first employee after eight months i believe you held the business for 10 years so so what did growth look like over that 10-year period how, how many employees did you end up with so when we sold we were a team of 16 it kind of the business kind of went in phases so the first i'd say three years i was pretty much the head of the company and I was the bottleneck for everything. And it was kind of the Jody show, which I imagine lots of agency owners have. And it was, yeah, just to kind of put it into context, I was doing all the finances. I was, I was doing all the sales stuff. I was meeting clients. I was the head of, I was, I was the, the key point of communication for all of the clients. And it was very unsustainable. And I remember at the time, I just wanted to go on holiday and I realized that I couldn't go on holiday. And actually, this is quite funny because after that time period of about three years, I think I read the four hour, four hour work week and I decided I think, what yeah. I, act, I think what I actually want is a business that is far more autonomous and runs better without me so that I can go to Australia. <laughs> So I actually, um, so my husband and I actually booked a five week trip to Sydney that was three months in the future. So we gave ourselves a three month deadline to, to work this out. And that's when I was like, I need to make a plan for this. And, um, I made a, so the first thing I did was made a table of all the processes that happen in the business. Every single one, it was about 60 different processes. And then in the next column went, who did it now? Which was pretty much just me <laughs> in every single, co- in every single row. And then it was who's going to do it in the future. And into that column went either another person's name, um, another role that I had to hire, or it just said no one because it was a stupid process and it didn't even need to happen. I'd just been doing it because I'd always done it. 
And then the next column was the plan. It was, okay, I'm going to sort this out by this date. And that was the plan of how to get the business into a situation where it ran a lot better without me being needed on the ground. So, so that was the first three years. And then the next five years was started by that five-week trip to Australia. And then after that, what I did was went away for a month and then came back for two months and then went away for a month and then came back for two and, and did that on repeat for five years. So it was very much a, I guess I'd call it a lifestyle business because my my plans weren't to grow it to be really, really big and to, you know, IPO or whatever else. It was very much to to travel and to have a really cool life whilst also running a cool business. I think that sounds very cool indeed. So uh, yeah, awesome, and 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 I love the analogy by the way that the you know how you broke down those processes because I do think what you described there about it being the Jody Show. I think it's the same in so many businesses that it's where we provide a service. Um, you know, it's easy for the for the sort of star power of the founder, you know, to kind of outshine other people. So, um, but that was a great process on how you broke it down and sort of split it out. Um, and giving yourself three months, by the way, congrats. I mean, I think some people <laughs> take a lot longer to do it than that. Um, out of interest, as the business evolved, though, did you find you started, I mean, obviously, you shift. You were shifting the requirements on you and the amount of time you maybe you needed to put in, but did you find your interests in the business kind of moved? Like, did you lean into certain type of work over other? Yeah, I say my journey throughout the business definitely evolved. It started off because I had an interest in just the work and, and doing the work. And then it st- and then it evolved into wanting to hire really great people and train them to do a really amazing job. And then it moved into wanting to create processes and hire people for the sales side of things. And then maybe it moved into getting our SEO sorted so that we had inbound leads and there wasn't so much networking involved. So I, I think that my role very much evolved throughout. And I almost feel like I kind of evolved myself out of a role because if you sort out every other area, then there's sort of nothing left to do. And by the time we sold, it was a it was a very self-sufficient team with people who were really proud of owning their own areas. So I genuinely did sometimes feel like I was surplus to requirements, which actually is quite nice. Yeah, absolutely. What a great goal to have for any business owner. So, um, and and out of the, was the team um, was the team all based in the UK or were they spread around or what, what did that look like? The team were all based in the UK, all based within probably a ten mile radius of Birmingham, UK, up until March twenty twenty when we were quite lucky with that because the office that we had was coming up for lease renewal. So we didn't renew because everyone was working from home anyway. And then that opened up our pool of candidates. So I think in that last year or so, it was, we we hired people from all over and it didn't matter that they were based in Birmingham. Yeah, interesting. And I'm curious because we, we had a similar thing with our, our business. Um, we, we had an office um, based in North Sydney and, you know, COVID came along and they shut the office and, you know, we all kind of wondered, well, why would you bother going back given the way we all operate now? But I, I've, I'm finding now that, you know, we're well into this whole pandemic and yes, the world has shifted, but I'm finding people are starting to talk about the benefits of going back to an office to have that kind of collaboration and engagement. You've, you've clearly sat on both sides of that fence. Do, you know, h- how important do you think it was having that office initially and being able to build that culture in, in person? I haven't got the experience of 
people going and working remotely and then coming back to an office because when we sold, everyone was still remote working, although there is an office now that the buyer um, has. So I think that going fully remote was something that I always wanted to do from the moment I started to go traveling, but just always chickened out and didn't actually do it. And it took a pandemic to go, actually, this is really what I think is best. I think that you, you definitely can build a rapport with people online you really can I think the odd you know meeting up with people having having team away days or having team away trips or whatever that's I think that all really helps but I think that you can do it it just takes more energy I think it takes more energy communicating with people through zoom calls that's why people are so knackered by by doing it because you're not used to just staring at someone's face the whole time and I think you have to almost have a bigger personality to make up, make up for the fact that you're not next to someone. I think if I was like this right next to you, I think it might be a bit much. I'd probably tone it down a bit, but we're on, you know, we're on looking at each other through a camera. So it's different. So yeah. I think it, I think it can work. I think the benefits to being remote are just huge and, and people being able to work their way and not just be in the same place arbitrarily because the company happens to have chosen that as their location. I think there's huge benefits to that. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I love what you're saying about the the sort of behavioral sort of shifts, because it's like we, we've almost sort of had to learn how to communicate for Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So, you know, you know that they can only see a certain amount. So you start shifting things. Yeah, I'm trying to show body language or whatever it might be, right? <laughs> With the limited kind of, yeah, it's it's kind of a weird new language. <laughs> At the start of the pandemic, when it's when it was first about a really good friend called Rob Geraghty, he used to have a company called Get Wow Factor, and he was a, pre- a presentations coach. And it was almost like the moment that everyone went everyone went to remote working. He renamed his company to Presenting Virtually, and he started teaching people about this stuff: how to present, how to build a rapport, how to communicate with people really well over Zoom. And he calls it that area behind you. It's your Zoom zone. <laughs> <laughs> and he taught people all these different tips and tricks and he's absolutely smashing it now because he just adapted so quickly and he was a real inspiration for me when that first happened as someone who was just really getting you know getting it sorted really fast and so he I, I credit him with a lot of the reasons why we actually ended up growing during the pandemic yeah cool yeah that's really interesting it's it, once again amazing how so many little niche businesses have popped up in response to the change of working environment, it's um, you know, I, I actually uh, I was on a call with a guy. Oh gosh, it was probably a year ago now, but they had um, started specialising in these like little phone booths and things like this that you could you know install in different places. It was just this response to shared working spaces, but how people suddenly needed a little box of privacy every now and again to do calls. It was like, wow. I mean, nobody had actually thought of that when they designed all these places, which is kind of weird in itself, but. Yeah, interesting to see the adaptations and, and how many of these little niche businesses pop up. One, in fact, one of the things I've seen lately too is, you know, I don't know how many LinkedIn experts there seems to be out there now, right? You talked about people not having social media profiles. Now it's like, oh my goodness, like who's your LinkedIn specialist? <laughs> <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> um, so t- talk to me a little bit, Jody. What you you held the business for ten years. You obviously you know experienced some nice growth, and you sounds like you went on a really interesting journey of discovery. At, at what point in the journey did you start thinking about exiting? It was 
after, so so March 2020, we all know what happened, and we shrank by about 25% in a week. And that was because we had clients in hospitality, travel, and events who were having a much worse time than we were, but that impacted us. So that was when it was a little bit panic stations. The main thing I wanted to do is just save jobs and, and not have to let anyone go. So I think that I spent quite a long time outworking coronavirus and just thinking, well, I just need to work harder and work more. And luckily I wasn't, I couldn't go out anywhere. So that there was time for that. Um, but what ended up happening is that the whole team just did brilliantly over that spring and summer. And we did things like we ran webinars every single day. We tried everything we could think of to just meet more people so that we could have the referrals that were coming in before. And everyone went so over and above what they had to do that that was what meant the company not only grew back to its normal size, but grew a further 20%. And so it got to about August or September 2020. And I just thought, what do I do here? Because I could just go back to what I was doing before, which was traveling for four months of every year. That would be absolutely fine. I would love to do that again. But at any moment, not only could any moment, at any moment, something could happen, which would mean that I had to get so back involved, but also I felt like the team that I had wasn't really a team that should just be my lifestyle business team. I felt like they were capable of quite a bit more than that. And so that's when I thought, I just feel like now is the time to sell. And before that, I hadn't really thought about it. We'd had some offers. We had one offer from a company who came quite far to come and see us, but it just didn't really feel right. I just, he was quite, the guy was quite shouty. And I was like, I don't want you shouting on my team. So I just, <laughs> I just stopped talking. I, I stopped to, um, the talks that we were having and didn't really think anything else of it. But once I thought, yes, I'm, we're going to sell, that was in August 2020. I just got super intentional about it and just made it happen. And that's when I started speaking to people who I thought would know about this stuff, getting advice, getting introductions and going along the journey to making the sale happen. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you did you hire somebody to support you through that process or did you kind of just manage it yourself? So the first thing I did, well, this yeah, it was in stages, but the first thing I did was I spoke to an amazing agency owner who's got an agency about nine times bigger than mine and I just said to her look with I'm thinking about selling you would be the exact type of company that would buy us I wasn't trying to sell to her but I just wanted the advice and I just said what would you want to know what are the questions you would ask me and she said well funnily enough we actually thought about buying a company so I'll send you all the questions I'll send you all this all this list of stuff that was fantastic and so I it, it meant that I could prepare the company for sale based on what she told me and then she put me in touch with a an M&A consultant and I spoke to him and he said okay so we can help you prepare the your second tier management pro, like people we can help you put all these processes in place we can help you do all these things and I was like huh I think I've done all that <laughs> and so because I'd been running it as a kind of lifestyle business for all that time it was it was pretty much set up like that anyway so that's when he said okay well we can introduce you straight to the M&A broker so I met the broker and he was really good to speak to because it was just so routine. It was like, we sell agencies, that's what we do. And because it was so, because it was so routine for him, because he sold like about, I think they do like seven or eight sales a year. It just made me think, 
it made it demystified everything for me. And he was very um, good at explaining the process. So he said, okay, well, first we'll send out a one pager, then we're going to introduce you to buyers. You can have chemistry meetings, then it's second meetings, then it's offers, then we'll negotiate, then then we complete. And he said it would take two, uh, six months and it took six months and two days. Yeah, wow. And and six months is actually a pretty decent time. I mean, it's funny, I often get asked how long does it take? Um, yes. y- you know, and I always say, look, s- six to nine months is fairly typical. I've seen it take longer. I've seen it been shorter, but you know, you, you just never know. You're dealing with a bunch of unknown buyers. We, we know that you know the process, but you can't yeah. control the other side, right? So it's, it's, uh, I yeah. I don't think I really minded how long it was going to take. I think it mattered that I was on the journey, however long it was going to be. It just felt like making progress in the right direction. And in the meantime, I was pretty happy. Like I was, I wasn't desperate to sell. I was in a pretty happy situation, loved my team, loved our clients. So I think that helped as well. I think it would change the whole dynamic if you were desperate to get out. And I think it's obvious. So we met 12, 12 different buyers in, in total. And for many of them, it felt like I was kind of interviewing them rather than they were interviewing me, which I feel like shifts the power a bit. And it probably wouldn't have been the case if I was really desperate to sell. I would have just been like, oh, my God, take it, please. Yeah. But yeah, that wasn't the case. Yeah, nice. Meeting 12 buyers, I mean, that is quite a lot of people. Um, I'm, I'm interested to know, how did you feel going through the process? Like, did, did you find it tiring? Were you do, having to do a lot of stuff on top of, well, I mean, I was going to say your day job, but I think you'd kind of built yourself out of a day job, hadn't you? <laughs> yeah, I think that um, having built myself out of a day job really helped because it's quite a time-intensive process. Um I was having, yeah, the, the 12 happened in August. No, it wasn't even August. I think it was just September. And sometimes there'd be a few a day. But the, the, the broker I worked with had a very good process for how they would run each of the calls. And they were on the calls and they, there was a structure. So I kind of knew what to expect for each one. But yeah, it's, um, the hardest thing is remembering what you've told that person and making sure that it's all what's in it for them rather than just me. I could have easily just gone off on like a spiel about my agency, but it's not relevant. It's not relevant. It has to be what they are looking for. And some some were great and some there would have been a really obvious um, synergy in the ones that we got offers from, that was the case. But then some, it was like, it just it just wouldn't have worked. So um, there was one who specialized in fashion and we had maybe a few fashion clients, but not enough for it to be a decent percentage. And it just... It's, it's fine. You just know it's not going to work. And that's what the chemistry meetings are for. And it's all, everyone's happy, but it's like, it's, it's cool. So there are yeah, a few of those. And good, but. Yeah. Good to find that stuff up, out, up, at, um, you know, find it out early, right? For, in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's, um, and so when you started off in this process, did you have, did you have a number in mind that you wanted for the business? Uh, yeah (laughs) yeah I I had a number in mind that I wanted for the business I actually wrote myself a check for that exact number and I kind of signed it like the perfect buyer because when I was getting intentional about the sale I wanted to like I journaled on it I really thought about it and I really wanted to make everything align and make it happen so yeah it sounds a bit fluffy but it worked it was the exact amount we sold for and it was the date I wrote on this pretend check we actually met the buyer within two weeks of that date but my goal was to make this number a no-brainer 
I don't think, I think with it, with an agency, especially you're always chasing that next milestone, whether it's that next revenue milestone, that next headcount milestone, that next profit milestone. And at some point I was like, enough, we are the size we need to be. I don't want to give it another 18 months. I want to do this now. This is the number I'm looking for. We're going to make this a new brainer. And once I thought about it in that way round, it was so strange because things just magically happened. We needed to find another certain amount of profit or revenue and it would just, we just get a new client for that exact amount. And magic stuff kind of happened, which then made the sale the exact amount that I wanted. So yeah, I very much had a number in mind. That's awesome. Uh, I, I love that. I think it's, um, and I and I think it's important about being intentional around what you want and what's important. So um, I, I, now I am curious, you, you, the number you came up with it, was it a number that you had kind of sat back and gone, well, this is kind of the number I want for my lifestyle and all the rest of it? Or was it a number that was more constructed out of what people were telling you a business should be worth? It was constructed out of, <laughs> it was what people were telling me a business should be worth. I spoke to a few different people. I think it's too easy to speak to one person and then fixate on their opinion and then use that for every conversation in the future. So I spoke to a range. I asked the agency owner who I spoke to at the start, the consultant, the broker. And I had another friend who just sold his agency as well. So I talked to him about their multiple. So it was, yeah, it was, it was very thought through. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It, and and it, can I ask, you know, what, what do agencies you know, typically sell, how, how do they come up with the valuation? I think that it can vary wildly. The broker told me that many of the ones they sell go for between four and six times EBITDA. Um, okay. But the, the, the certain things that change it, like having good processes, a second tier management team and um, some tech, tech elements of a business sometimes as well can make, mean that it's much higher. So I think up to up to 10 wouldn't be crazy. Wow. I mean, they're, they're solid multiples. I know people listening to this podcast, um, you know, I think any, when you start getting above the fives and sixes, it starts to kind of raise some eyebrows um, just because so many deals get done below those levels, right? Um, and, and, you know, between you, me, and whoever might listen to this, I, I actually think Australia... Australia tends to be a little bit cheap, you know, like it just, that the, the multiples you get in Australia, I just don't think necessarily align with what you would get out of the States or Europe and, and places that are larger and maybe more established. Um, so, so there are some, I think, some regional differences there, but they're, they're some solid, really solid multiples. Um, do, do you feel, um, one, one of the things I'm interested in, you mentioned eighty percent of your revenue was now recurring, you know, sort of retainer based, and clearly that is far more attractive for a buyer and can help bump the valuation. H how long did your clients typically stay on board for? Um, you know, was there a was there a a normal life cycle? It was a long time. We had some clients who'd been with us from the very start. We. Wow often sign people up on a three or six months minimum term and then after that it was 30 day rolling monthly so 
I didn't really, yeah, I said before, didn't I? I? I didn't really like the idea that something would come to an end and it would have an end date. I always liked that it was 30 days rolling monthly because then there's freedom on both sides. There's an onus on both sides to keep the relationship really good. It's not like you just, we'd, we'd often meet potential clients who were coming to the end of a two-year relationship with an agency and looking for new people. And I just thought, I don't like that. I don't want anyone to feel like they're stuck in a relationship. I don't think that's good for anyone. So, so yeah, they, they stayed, um, they stayed for a while and we had very good relationships with them too. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's always just sort of interesting, you know, like how long can you rely on, on any one particular client? But I, I definitely like that model of just, you know, you keep it open ended. Let's, let's assume we'll keep doing good work and we'll want to stay together forever. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I don't, I don't think anyone, the plan A is not to change agencies. The plan is to find the one that can just grow with you because I think it's a bit of a nightmare finding and training a new agency from scratch only to do it again every six months. And with some, we actually, um, we, we must have met some potential clients who would basically open the meetings by talking about the last agency that they had that were rubbish and the one before that that were terrible. And we kind of made this phrase like agency graveyard. And we'd be like, Oh, we're just going to join their agency graveyard, aren't we? And we took, I mean, we took a lot of pride in sometimes being the one who actually did get on with them. But I don't necessarily like it. This isn't a super superiority thing. It's more like, different clients work better with different agencies but at the same time there's other there's other clients where you do just join the agency graveyard and then they realize that the common denominator is them um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah for sure i think i think we've all had clients like that it's um yeah it's the, it's the way it's always going to be right we're all on a bell curve so uh, <laughs> um so so from you getting I, i'm Love to understand just this little bit of the journey through this exit because you, you've picked a number. It's it's obviously a multiple of EBITDA. You know, you maybe you've got a slight range there that you you're targeting. From the moment you met the buyer, well, how long did that process take, and was there any kind of negotiation around those numbers, or did you kind of just align fairly quickly? The numbers aligned fairly quickly. We got um, we got three offers and. The one, one of the ones that we didn't go with, they were too low as a multiple. But not only were they too low as a multiple, they'd done funny things for EBITDA. And so things like averaged it out over the last three years and put, taken out, I don't know, taken out various things and added various things in and just messed around with it a little bit too much, which made me think, I don't know if starting out a relationship like this is is it indicative of what the future is going to look like. And that's where I just wasn't sure. So although they were a really cool company, it would have been really cool to join them. It was just too many red, red flags. And I just thought, I'm not, I don't want to do this. Yeah, it's funny how people can get a little too cute with some of these things, right? Like a little bit too smart for their own good trying to be clever and negotiating it's um <laughs> yeah it's... and then another thing that we had to watch out for which I I didn't I wouldn't have realized at first but then when I found out more about them that's when I realized that the one another company that put in an offer they had just done a deal with another well about a year ago they'd done a deal with another agency that had worked out really well for them as an acquisition and so they 
kind of wanted to carbon copy that one onto ours. And it was actually very different because the owner of the agency that they had already bought was kind of bored and wanted to be bought by a big company and wanted to go with them and had these dreams of building that company within a bigger company. And that wasn't me, but they wanted it to be me. And so the offer came with lots of, and here's that amazing opportunity for Jodie and here's what Jodie will be doing here. And it just didn't, it didn't make sense. And I think they were almost too far down the, well, let's just copy this deal for them to make one that actually worked for us. Yeah. And so so talk, talk to me a little bit about what, what did you want when, when the deal went through? What, what was an ideal scenario in your mind? I didn't think too, other than having the, the check that I made, <laughs> the yeah, pretend yeah. check that I made, I didn't think too much about that because that was sorted out pretty quickly. I think we got there pretty quickly. I mainly wanted the team to be looked after and the clients to be looked after. That was my, that was my thinking. That was what I was interviewing a buyer for, I guess. The first offer that we, well, all of the offers that we got at first had a portion of the deal tied to an earnout, where I would need to stay and and do certain things um, to I don't know secure the rest of the deal I don't know but once we dug once we dug into that together and it was all on a very open transparent conversation basis it was quite clear that I wouldn't actually really have anything to do in an earnout and then it ended up meaning that I wasn't required for one at all. Yep. So, so with the earnouts, because I think a lot of people selling get get presented with earnouts as a part of the, the the offer. How how long, if you can recall, how long were the the earnout periods that they were talking about? One was three years. One was eighteen months. One was two years. But I, yeah, I think okay. agent agency averages between three to five years a lot of the time. It's wow. it's a lot of a. It's, it's, it's pretty much a kind of insurance for the buyer, I think. But I think that it's just not always needed. And sometimes it might be better for the buyer that the owner who is ready to sell and move on isn't actually there cramping their style. And so they can go do their own thing. So it was all on a very amicable, happy, let's discuss this together type basis. I was very clear that my goal wasn't to run away my goal was to do this right and if that took a month a year 10 years whatever that's fine I'll, I'll be around so I was really clear on that yeah nice nice well I think so 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 to confirm so you got your deal without an earn out um and and was there the other two sort of portions we always see in deal structures is that there's obviously the upfront cash which is straight in your bank and we all love that the most um Sometimes there's also can be a deferred component where they say, hey, listen, um, it's not like an earnout at risk, but we're going to pay you in some increments over time. Um, did you have anything like that in, in your deal? Mine was pretty straightforward because I think part of, the re- part of the reason it was pretty straightforward was because quite quickly I just said to the broker, let me chat to them. <laughs> and so we we were just having conversations between us where we got to a situation that worked for both of us pretty quickly. So I guess I would always encourage that with anyone thinking about selling, just just get on a level. And then yeah, they're they're buyers, and it's a big scary. Oh, they're going to buy your company, but really they're just they're just people, and you're just a person, and you're trying to get the best deal together. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's a. That, I think that's great advice. I mean, you know, this whole interviewing thing. You, you, you're obviously sifting for the people you connect with, and you feel like it's going to be a better journey, right? Um, yeah. And I think if you nail onto that same. sort of stuff, it yeah, it's easier to resolve things when you've got people on both sides being reasonable, right? <laughs> yeah, there was one agency that I met that I just remember thinking, "You don't like your team." <laughs> <laughs> that was what I came out with. I think that's why I wrote in my notes, does not like team. And then I was thinking this isn't very good for my team because they're just going to, they're going to add themselves to the nuisance pile that this company thinks their team are. So, so yeah, they were, they were some of the ones where I was like, yeah, this isn't going to work, but it was useful to meet so many and see the range. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it makes you, um, it gives you food for thought in terms of what, what's really important to you. Um, so you get your deal done what what did the transition look like for you How, did did you have to hang around at all i wrote a giant spreadsheet which was everything that i knew i needed to do before i left i guess so it was like i feel like it was about 200 lines of get this in place make sure this is okay um I'm not super in the detail all the time, but with that, I really was because I just wanted to make sure that there was never any, I hated this idea of it being, what's the answer? Oh, Jody would know. I just wanted to eliminate anything like that. And I was very, I was very happy to be contacted and asked any questions, but um, I thought it would be better for the team if they didn't need to do that. So it was a super giant spreadsheet that I just worked through and it took two weeks. Okay. So, so two weeks, you did your deal, you hung around for two weeks and it was done. Yeah, but I was happy to hang around for longer. But yeah, it was, it was two weeks in the end. Oh, I, th- I, think, uh, I think that's a dream, dream role. I mean, it's, um, I've, I've often had clients who have said, look, you know, expect even without earnouts, all the rest of you are not required. They don't want to employ you. Expect that it could be a couple of months, you know, at least where you're in and out, you're doing things and you're on me- in meetings. But um no, that's very, very organized of you, Jodie. Well done. Yeah. But I think that if you go back to the three months before the five-week Australia trip, maybe that was laying the groundwork for that because it was putting processes in place to not be needed. So I think throughout the journeys, there's been small small elements of preparing us for sale. I just didn't know that that was the case at the time. Yeah, nice. And, well, and I guess the takeaway here then for, for anyone listening is don't wait to the last minute or that you're in a transaction before you start thinking about this stuff and how to systemize and set up your processes. And, you know, what you do today is going to make life a lot easier later. Um, I, think the, I think the one line is start your earn out now. If you know that you want to sell, almost pretend that you have sold, write yourself a pretend check with today's date on it, and then act like you're doing that transition get yourself so that you're surplus to requirements and then find a buyer that wants to take take off your hands this beautiful entity that is going to work for everyone. Uh, that's I'm, I'm going to actually put that in quotes, I think, because that's a brilliant piece of advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you do get it right, you may be able to walk out very, very quickly. And, and Jodie, I, I, do I don't know if you mind, do you mind sharing with people where you are, where you're calling from today? Yes, I'm in Mexico, which is really funny because we put before we got on the call, I said, oh, it's really cliche, isn't it? Like you sell your business and then you go to Mexico. So here I am living the the cliche, but yeah, it's it's fun. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I think a lot of people would love to uh, perhaps sell up and walk out and head off to Mexico or wherever tropical and warm they would like to be. So uh, no, I think that's I think that's cool. Um, 
I'm, I'm interested, Jody, what are you doing these days? Like, you're obviously traveling, no, but I, you strike me as the type of person who probably doesn't just go and do nothing and sit on a beach all day, even though that does sound very nice. <laughs> I am, well, I compete for Great Britain in powerlifting, so I train a lot. And I'm doing a bit of sitting on beaches, but not too much because I'm starting another business at some point in the next couple of months. But it's been a, it's been about 10 months of thinking about what to start and making sure it's the right way forward and kind of enjoying it at the same time because it's so easy to not let yourself enjoy it to always feel like you have to be moving on to the next thing. So I've spent a lot of time journaling, chilling out, making sure that I know what I want before making any moves. Yeah, nice. And and are you looking at something without kind of giving away too much here, but are you starting something in a similar field or? I'm going from agency to product. So it's a software product. And the agency to product journey is absolutely fascinating because it's so different. I've got such a beginner's mind with it all because there's so much stuff that I'm learning from scratch so I'm blogging about that quite a lot and just trying to make sense of it in my head but yeah it's um it's a fun fun process so far yeah that sounds cool so you mentioned you're blogging there so is, is this something that people can can look up and read yes so my website is jodiecook.com j-o-d-i-e-c-o-o-k.com and if you put forward slash hey h-e-y then that's my blog and you can subscribe and I send one out every Monday and Thursday. And it's all about entrepreneurship, how to run a business without it running you. And it's a bit about happiness, lifestyle design and soft and agency to product as well. That's awesome. Awesome. And I did note that you actually wrote a book, you've written a couple of books, but one that really kind of jumped out at me with, uh, you know, having kids was, was how to raise entrepreneurial kids. Um, That's, that's, cool I love that <laughs> yeah so I I co-wrote that with um Daniel Priestley who is Australian actually he's from Brisbane yeah, key and, person of yeah. influence yep <laughs> yeah yeah so he um he's a dad of three he's got three kids all under the age of seven and I don't have kids but I was kind of raised to be entrepreneurial almost by accident really my mom and dad just kind of helped me to be very independent from a super early age. So yeah, we got together, wrote that book and it's it's amazing. Like our, our plan is to create like the next version of entre- entrepreneurs, the next generation of entrepreneurs. So yeah, have a read. I'll send you a coffee. That'd be awesome. I'd love to read it. Uh, you know, I've got two boys who are 12 and 14 and um, my eldest, a couple of years ago, I was helping him set up his little gurneying business in the local streets and, you know, washing driveways and doing little things to make some money. And, um, yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. So any kind of framework to help people kind of work out how to do that in a better way, I think would be, uh, would be awesome. Uh, is it, it really is a framework as well. It's like a, we've turned, it's super entrepreneurial, like we've turned it into a method and, um, yeah, it gets good feedback. Nice, nice. Well, look, if there's any way we can help in the future, please reach out. But uh, um, and and are you other than the blog? Are you happy for people to reach out and connect with you? Yes, I would love that. I always love hearing from people who've listened to podcast episodes that I've been on. So yeah, on on that website, jodycook.com, there's a contact form. So just just say hey, I'd love to hear from you. Awesome, that's fantastic. Um, we'll put your links uh, into the show notes um with your linkedin your website and all the rest of it and and a, and a link to the book um on amazon so uh so people can uh, can go and find that 
Um, Jody, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. It's, it's been a fascinating journey. I'm very jealous that you're in Mexico right now, although, as you said before, Sydney's not a bad place to be, but I can't <laughs> wait to get on a plane myself. But, uh, but look, once again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Great. Thank you, Simon. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.